We will be in Philippians this morning, Philippians chapter 1. We will be looking at some very important texts that are related to the church. Paul moves from a personal testimony to a corporate message here in this text. And I think that this is an important text given the recent events that we've all witnessed in this last week. This has been a, uh, a very sad week for many in America. This has been an historically sad week for America in general, and especially for those involved in the Boston Marathon. And I want to encourage you to pray for those survivors, and I want you to also pray for the suspect that's in custody. If he does not receive God's grace, he will face a greater judgment than the one he'll face here in America. So pray for that young man. The events of last week have done a lot of things in our country. They've stirred up American pride and resolve in all of us. The the Boston bombing caused our country to unite as one nation. It's caused our country to seek and protect together. It's caused our country to be willing to suffer, to rescue others. We've seen all that happen this week. You've watched the news at all. You saw that happen the day of the bombing. And I'm very thankful this week that I am an American citizen. I'm thankful to God for that. He placed us here. But I am more thankful for my heavenly citizenship that will never cease that God also placed me in. Our heavenly citizenship is greater and sweeter than our American citizenship. It's sweeter and it's greater because it it doesn't unite us as a nation. It unites us as God's people to Christ Jesus. And it also reveals the truth about Christ to us. And and this citizenship also allows us, as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, to be Christ's ambassadors, reaching out to rescue others for His namesake, even if it costs us everything. That's a divine privilege. It's a miraculous citizenship that we have been called into, that we have been granted by God. He picked his citizens personally. He sent his son to live a perfect life for his citizens because we couldn't. He sent his son to die the death that his wicked citizens deserved so that we could be called sons and daughters of God because Christ received our punishment in our place and was raised victorious to say, these people are mine by grace through faith in what I've done. That's what makes us heavenly citizens. The letter to the Philippians reminds us of the importance of getting these citizenships correct. We're reminded about this in Philippians 1, 27 to 30. There we'll see that God commands It's a command, this is an imperative command through the Apostle Paul. He commands the Philippians not to forget that they are to live together like heavenly citizens while they serve Christ here on earth. We don't need to forget that either. This letter was written to all churches for all time. This letter is written to us to remind us that we are heavenly citizens Yet we are here on earth serving Christ. And we must be willing to unite and to stand for Christ and to serve and suffer for Christ because of what Christ has done 
on our behalf to make us citizens. We do that out of joy and thanksgiving. Our lives should reflect the magnificent worth of our Redeemer's work. That's what Paul's going to say here in this text. Let me just look at 127 with you quickly. Then we'll go back and look through these all together. But it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It could be translated, only let your conduct as a church or let your conduct as heavenly citizens be worthy of the gospel that you proclaim, the good news you proclaim. Let your life reflect its great worth. How much is Jesus worth? He's called you. He's loved you. He's died for you. Therefore, how should you live in light of this great worthy Christ who gave his life for us? The phrase there in 127, manner of life, in the ESV, I think in the NASB it may be conduct. Manner of life could also be translated conduct easily, and it makes perfect sense in what Paul is saying here because it comes from a Greek word, polis. Polis, let your political standing, let your position in this city-state be manifest by the way you live your life. The primary meaning of the phrase was to live as a faithful citizen of Rome. That's how it would have been used in Paul's day. That's how it was used at Rome. And Paul didn't use this word, this phrase, accidentally. This is obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it was also God who chose Paul and his intellect to be the, the letter writer here for a very specific reason, because Paul knows how the Philippians feel about their citizenship. He chose this word because the Philippians were proud citizens of Rome. Though they're in Macedonia, they are Roman citizens. They were considered citizens of Rome because Philippi was a Roman colony. So the residents of Philippi were considered Roman citizens, and, and most that were there were ex-Roman soldiers. They were patriots. And from this point on in the letter, Paul speaks to them like patriots. He speaks to them as soldiers of Christ. Not just citizens of heaven, but soldiers of heaven here on earth reflecting the kingdom of God by the way we live our life. The people at Philippi understood this when they read this letter. And they took their special status as Roman citizens very seriously. They were very proud of this. This was unique. They were actually considered a little Rome here in this region with all the authority of Rome, with all the popularity of Rome, with all the prestige of Rome. As citizens of Rome, they knew how important it was that their manner of life would reflect their noble citizenship, reflect the nobility of the emperor, nobility of Rome and what it stood for. They knew that if they did something in their life that reflected poorly on Rome, they would blaspheme the very citizenship they had been given, and they didn't want to do anything to put a stain or reproach upon that. Paul understood all this. So in Philippians 1.27, what Paul does is he reminds the saints at Philippi that, yeah, you're citizens, but you have a greater citizenship in heaven. So let your conduct as a faithful citizen of heaven reflect the glorious gospel that placed you here. He even refers to their citizenship being from heaven in Philippians 3.20. Turn there with me. We can look at that passage quickly. He makes a 
second point of this here in Philippians 3.20 when he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to talk about what Christ will do in raising us up as heavenly citizens into his kingdom, his glorious kingdom one day. And go back with me to Philippians 1.27. We're going to read this text in just a moment. We, we know that there are certain things that identify our citizenship. And Paul said, I want you to know that your citizenship should identify what country you belong to. And so here in Philippians 1, 27 to 30, Paul reminds the Philippians, that, and he reminds us as well, that every church since this time should be marked out by specific characteristics. The characteristics of our heavenly citizenship and those characteristics are evident in our manner of life and what he's saying is we should live in such a way that we testify to how much christ is worth to us not only in heaven but here on earth as his citizens by the way we live our life so in the text let's read this and we'll see these three characteristics that stand out about our heavenly citizenship again in 127 he says only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. That is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation." And that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. He's, he's writing to them like soldiers. They understand this language. I'm in a fight, I'm in a conflict, I'm in a prison writing to you because I'm preaching Christ and it was illegal and I've been, I've been shut down, if you will, by the government. But as a result, a bunch of soldiers got saved and heard the gospel. As a result, a bunch of Romans who were discouraged are encouraged to go proclaim the gospel. He says, so I, I want you to make sure your manner of life reflects the worthiness of of the one who saved you. Even if I don't get to come to you. That's what he wants to do. He wants to come to them, but he doesn't want them to build their foundation on Paul. He wants them to build their foundation on Christ. And he wants them to move forward as heavenly citizens. And their lives should be characterized by these three things that we see here. They should be characterized by, number one, standing together in one spirit. We see that in the first part of 127. Heavenly citizens should be characterized, secondly, by striving together with one mind. And thirdly, we see that our heavenly citizenship should be characterized by suffering together for Christ's sake. In verse 27, God wants the Philippians and us to know that our heavenly citizenship should be characterized by the very first thing I said, by standing together in one spirit. And what he means is, you need to be standing together corporately as a church family. 
God has chosen the church to be his vehicle and his instrument to reveal his message and his glory here on earth. So he says, I, I want to make sure whether I come or not, you understand that you are to stand firm, united in spirit, corporately as a church, united in your heart because of what Christ has done in calling you together through his reconciling love. So he says that in verse 27a, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Paul says, I, I need to be able to verify that you are living in such a way that you reflect the worthiness of Christ, the, the goodness of God's grace through your unity of spirit, through your unshakable, immovable unity. When he uses the phrase there, standing firm, at the end of 27a, when he says standing firm, he was actually using a term that Roman soldiers would be familiar with. He basically says, do what you did in military service. When you were told to stand as a unit, stand as an army, not, be, not being moved even an inch, they would plant their feet together, link arms with one another, and they would stand in opposition to the enemy, and they would stand there with one heart, immovable, unshakable, with an attitude of mutual determination and conviction. Paul says, I want you to be like this. If, if you're going to reflect the worthiness of Christ, don't let anyone distract you from your calling as a church. Stand firm. Allow no divisions, no deception. Stand firm against opposition. Stand firm in Christ like a wall of unity up against those who attack. We all saw that this week, didn't we? We all saw that on the news this week. We saw that in Boston. We saw a wall of police who had their attitudes united. They would not budge an inch until this man was apprehended. They were standing firm in one spirit. And that's what Paul's calling us to do here. That's what God is calling us to do as a church. We need to be united. Our heavenly citizenship is made evident through this. It's made evident through a solid corporate witness. He wants them to stand firm as immovable soldiers united in Christ's service. Not budging an inch. United in our spirit. And our spirit is united together in the gospel so that we would honor our Redeemer. Honor our King. That's what our spirit is united in. We, we are united and we should rejoice because of what united us. And we should stand firm in this joy that we've been given in Christ. We should, as heavenly citizens, should stand firm in one spirit corporately because we are made one body through the reconciling work of Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 2, 13. The reason Paul wants them to do this is because he wants to ultimately honor Jesus, who reconciled us, who made us his body by his saving work. If, if, if our hearts are united in the gospel, we will not be budged. We will not be moved an inch. We will go forward into the darkness of this world declaring Christ saves. Unashamed. 
as a corporate witness for Christ here on earth because we are made one body through Jesus' reconciling work according to Ephesians 2.13. Paul writes here to the Ephesians, says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who, are, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now what he's talking about here is he's, he's talking to Gentiles. People who were outside of the covenant, they were outsiders, aliens. He said, I, I, I'm telling you this, that Christ Jesus, in Him, you have been brought near, but brought near by a very, very precious, precious way, by the blood of Christ. In other words, you, you were brought near to God, you who were defiled and dejected and separated from God because of your sin and your wickedness and your disobedience to God's law. Well, Jesus... He bled and died because of those sins so that you who were separated could be brought near and forgiven and repent of the things that offended God so that you could have a relationship with God based on the love of God the Son. Verse 14 says, For He Himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile what he's talking about by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to god in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off you gentiles and peace to those who were near you jews for through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the oikos of God, the family of God, the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, built on truth that they taught. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone of that truth in whom the whole structure, the church, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, when we relate that back over to Philippians, when, when Paul tells the Philippian saints, stand firm in one Spirit, he says, if you understand this, if you understand what Christ has done to reconcile you, to make you one body, one corpus, you should stand firm and be immovable because you have been reconciled by God and your unity will reveal the gospel's glory in your life and publicly. See, our, our unity of the faith, our unity is, is something that God gives to us through the work of Christ because we've been reconciled to Him and, and that is something that the world cannot understand. The power of the gospel is evident in our lives when we see that we have been created in Christ to reflect His glory in our diversity that comes together in unity. When the world sees black and white, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, male and female, in the body of Christ, all redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, going out into the world, united in the gospel, declaring the good news, though they have nothing else in common, the world scratches its head and says, what's up with this? And then they tend to ask us questions like Peter will refer to later as I read from 1 Peter. Why don't you guys tell me about the hope that lies within you? Because I don't have this kind of hope. I don't have this kind of unity. I don't have this kind of peace 
And the church is here to reflect that corporately. That's why Paul tells them they need to be prepared to stand firm because the world doesn't get it and the world actually hates it. Paul was being opposed in every town he preached in. Though he was preaching good news, God saves through the death of His Son all who repent and believe upon Christ. And He'll change your life. He'll transform you not only in heaven but here on earth by putting you into His body to be sanctified, to be cleansed, to be taught. That's why he tells them this in Philippians 1.27 that standing firm in one spirit is a characteristic of a heavenly citizen. Standing firm, united in spirit, in our desire to go forward, our attitude and our devotion to go forward as Christ's witnesses on the earth is a characteristic that you belong to a heavenly kingdom. When we're standing firm in one spirit, this corporate unity reveals to the world and to the church how much we value the reconciling promises and power of Christ's atoning work. We're united in the gospel. And if we value that, we will go forward in unity declaring that as a church body because we value the reconciling promises of God that are even given to us in other texts like in Colossians. Go there with me. Colossians 1. We value this. This is why we stand firm in corporate unity. We value what it says in Colossians 1.19. This is what reveals the reconciling promises and power of Christ's work here is this text. It says, for in Him, and that's referring to Jesus. It just talked about Jesus being the image of the invisible God, the, the very one who created and sustains the whole universe. God the Son who is supreme and sovereign and preeminent. He says, in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He comes to us incarnate. He comes to us as a babe, grows up before our eyes as a perfect, righteous man. And then He goes to a death as a righteous man in place of unrighteous men and women. And that's what Paul is going to talk about here. It was in Him that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him, through Jesus, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. There it is again. Why do we stand firm in unity? Because we have all been brought into the body the same way. God the Son comes takes our place, dies for us, sheds His own blood on the cross to bring hostile and alienated people to God and bring us peace. Therefore, we should stand firm in unity, declaring His glory, declaring the evident power of Christ in us by our unity in the church. Verse 21 says, And you who, were, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body. That is the church. See, Paul, Paul was so 
consumed with the work of Christ that brought him, a hostile Pharisee, into the kingdom. That he says, I'm going to rejoice even in my suffering as I stand firm declaring the gospel of Christ for the sake of his body's nourishment for the church. He says in verse, verse 25 that it was of the church which he became a minister of this gospel. He says, I, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. One of the things we need to understand about standing firm in the unity, in the one spirit that we've been given in Christ is that He is the one who is giving us the energy to stand firm. He is there with us, standing alongside of us, holding our backs, pushing us forward, grounding us in the gospel so that His work will be evident in the world. That's why Paul says, I'm willing to suffer if need be so that Christ would be manifest in you, the church. The one who reconciled you should be seen evidentially in your lives. Our heavenly citizenship is, is made evident when we do this. Our heavenly citizenship is made evident when we stand firm in one spirit, revealing Christ's work corporately, and when we reveal it biblically. When we reveal our unity, we're revealing something supernatural. We're revealing the power of the reconciling love of God made manifest here on earth. And we can't do that, though, if we don't understand that biblically. If we don't understand the gospel biblically, we will not reflect our joy for the gospel accurately. And so Paul gives another, another characteristic for us in the next part of Philippians 1.27 that helps us with this. He says in this text that God wants us to know that our heavenly citizenship should be characterized, number two, by striving together with one mind. It means with one mind, biblically. Striving together biblically. In verse 27, Paul reminds us that our heavenly citizenship is made evident through our biblical witness, not just our corporate witness of unity, but our biblical witness that's made up of an apologetic witness and an evangelistic witness witness. He's saying to them in this text that our heavenly citizenship is made evident through our apologetic and evangelistic witness here on earth. You, you want to know if you belong to Jesus? Do you have a passion for his message? Do you want to share it with others? Do you want to stand up for Christ and defend his name, even if it costs you persecution? When you do that, you will identify with the citizens of heaven. The martyrs that are crying out under the throne of God, crying out and praising God, asking Him, how, how long, O Lord, until You vindicate us? They were slaughtered. They will be slaughtered because of their apologetic and evangelistic witness 
I think there are a lot of things in life that we are willing to die for. And it was evident this week that men and women at this, this horrible event were willing to die to save other people. But as Christians, are we that devoted to our true citizenship? That we would run into buildings to rescue the lost? That we would sacrifice everything to make a defense of our faith in public? Paul says you, you need to be marked out by this. It's a characteristic of a heavenly citizen. If you believe in heaven, if you believe in Jesus, then you'll tell others about him. You'll not be ashamed. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It's not a kid's story. Heaven is more real than all of this that we see here on earth. This is temporal. Everything we have is fading. Heaven is eternal. The king of heaven who sent us into this mission is also eternal and worth standing up for and defending and sharing. Go back with me to Philippians 1.27b. I'll read A and B here. I want to hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let me break this this sentence down a little bit here for you. When he says, I want you to, to stand firm in one spirit, he says, I want to tell you how to do that. You need to have the right attitude, the right convictions, the right determinations based on right doctrine. So he says you need to have a, a united spirit, attitude, determination, but you also need to have a united mind. And the word there for mind is actually the term that's used in the Greek for the, the mental desire of the heart, the mental desire of the being. You need to stand firm in one spirit and have this, this mental desire to stand firm for this one cause, this one thought, this one purpose, this one order you have been given by God. Stand firm in one spirit and with one purpose, one desire. Striving side by side. That's a very interesting phrase in the Greek. The, the word athlete comes from this term. He says, I want you to stand firm in one spirit. Don't, don't be moved by anything. Let your attitudes be united. And stand firm with one mind, striving together uh, like, like co-athletes. Basically, the word, though, is the way it's used here in this text is, I want you to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving as co-contenders as soldiers, battling, together, united in heart, united in mind, united in purpose, united in attitude, going forward. And here's what, here's what he wants you to do. He wants you to stand firm with one purpose as co-contenders for the faith of the gospel. That word there is interesting because in this, this setup, in this context, what he means is, I want you to, to strive together I want you to be co-contenders for the doctrine of the gospel, the teachings of God's good news, definitively. I want you to be defenders, co-contenders, united in heart, united in mind, going forward, doing battle for the truth. He wants them to strive and contend as soldiers to declare Christ's worth. We declare His worth through His Word as we explain His Word and what He has done in His work. This is our order from God. This is the characteristic that marks out heavenly citizens. We desire to labor together as co-contenders for the truth of the Gospel. That's an identifying mark of a heavenly citizen. Is that your desire? 
Do you, do you love the name of Christ so much that when people shame Him and distort Him and distort the truth of the Word of God, you can't stand it and you have to stand up and say, enough's enough. That's a mark of a heavenly citizen who says, He is to be praised. His truth is to be honored. No matter what it costs me. And I want to link arms with those who are like-minded, who have the same mind and are willing to fight for the same cause as heavenly citizens here on earth. That's what the church does. Heavenly citizens are called to strive side by side. This is great because it doesn't say that heavenly citizens are to look to the Pope. They aren't to look to the preacher. They're to strive side by side as co-contenders. We're all in this for the glory of Christ. Each one serving in his distinctive roles, using his distinctive gifts, with one mind, with one desire, with one heart, one attitude, defending and evangelizing. We're to strive together evangelistically and apologetically. And that word apology means to give a reason, to explain why we believe what we believe. We are to do that because we are united by the doctrine of Christ. So we should be able to know what the doctrine of Christ is and we should be able to defend the doctrine of Christ and tell others, biblically. The doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the gospel is explained to us in Scripture. We see a glimpse of that evangelistically uh, in 2 Corinthians 5. Turn there with me. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, shows us the doctrine that unites us, shows us what brings us in and what we should respond to and share with others. See, see when, you, when you come to the, the epistles, when you come to the book of Acts, you find people who are confronted with the gospel, and the next thing you see is you have messengers when they are converted by the gospel. You have obedience. You have followers of Christ, disciples, because they're united by the truth, and they're excited about the truth. And they're also commanded to go and proclaim the truth. And in honor of our king, soldiers obey, and they go forth. We're united by this doctrine so we can tell others evangelistically, as Paul does here in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says, therefore, if, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's been created, regenerated. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It means the life that you lived before your salvation, before your regeneration, that man died with Christ on the cross because of God's grace, His unmerited favor. That man is dead. That man no longer exists. That man's sins are in the past as far as the east is from the west. His past sins, his present sins, and his future sins because Christ took them upon himself. Our sins were imputed to Jesus. Our death was laid on his account. He willingly takes our place, receives our punishment, so that we could be created anew, afresh, regenerated, a new creation by God's grace and his righteous standing, his righteousness, his life on the cross is now imputed to those who repent and believe in His work according to His Word. And that is our standing before God by grace. And we should want to share that. That's what Paul's doing here. 
If you're a new creation in Christ, you want to do this. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verse 18, all this is from God. Salvation is all of grace, and it's all from God. God gets all the praise. You were spiritually dead, incapable of coming to him, not good enough, a sinner, separated, alienated from God, a rebel at heart. And if you're a new creation, it's because God sought you out. God loved you and came after you and brought you the good news through a messenger who loved Christ. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, oh, it's just Paul. No, wait a minute. The Great Commission is to everyone who believes. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now here's his argument. Be reconciled on the basis of this. Verse 21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. That's the imputation, the, the sin account laid to Christ's account there. So that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's Christ's love and grace and righteousness granted to us. Granted to us. So that he says that we can tell you that you can have this by imploring you to be reconciled to God on Christ's behalf. That, that's part of a desire of a heavenly citizen here. He's united by the doctrine of Christ and he can't help but tell others about Christ. That's a characteristic of your heavenly citizenship. Do you love to tell people about the gospel? I'm not saying are you good at it. I'm not saying that you're proficient. I'm not saying that you're even consistent. But it should be the underlying passion of every heavenly citizen. You should walk away from circumstances going, oh, wow, I missed an opportunity. Next time, by God's grace, I'll prepare and I'll be ready to share the truth. Not condemned because you don't, but convinced of its importance so you will. That's what a heavenly citizen desires to do. It's not all he desires to do. You also desire to defend the truth, according to 1 Peter 3.13. 1 Peter 3.13. Now, what's interesting about 1 Peter 3.13 is the context in which it comes, but I'll, I'll read the text and I'll tell you what I mean by this. He, basically, if you're a heavenly citizen, I think the idea still follows here that you're willing to strive side by side for the faith to give a reason for what you believe biblically, apologetically. That's where this word apologia comes from here is 1 Peter 3.13. He says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. But have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ, sanctify Christ, set Christ apart as preeminent, as most important, as Lord. See, so he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. That's apologia, an apology. Always be prepared to make an apologetic argument to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, 
having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, the context is, if you're living a righteous life, if you're living a life that you're, you're set apart to God, you're, you're, you're honoring Christ, you're, you're trying to faithfully serve your wife, that's part of the context, faithfully serve your husband, faithfully serve the church, people are going to see you and think you're bizarre because they don't know how you have this peace and this unity and this love. And they're going to ask you, based on your manner of life, about the hope that lies within you. And then you need to be ready to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, for the doctrine of Christ, and tell people about the hope that lies within you. Do you know the gospel well enough to give an answer to anyone who asks you about the hope that lies within? I want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you to be in God's word so you can do that. That's what Paul is telling them they need to be prepared for as heavenly citizens, to strive, contend, if one of you was about to be injured or hurt, all of us would run to your side and we would fight for you, alongside you, as co-contenders to protect you. Heavenly citizens should feel that way about the gospel. Are we willing to run alongside Christ and honor Him and glorify Him by sharing His goodness with others and defending His honor? That's what Paul wants us to do. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to strive side by side for the faith. And that duty will reveal to the world how much we value the restoring promises and purposes of Christ himself. We reveal how much we value his restoring promises that, that gave us hope once we were saved that God would change our lives and make us ambassadors for the king. We who are defiled and alienated, we have a, a new promise we are called His ambassadors. We are called His children. We are called eventually to heaven. And in light of that, we contend. We strive for His glory. We strive to defend the truth, to find the truth, to reveal the truth. Just like those Boston investigators looking for the reality of what happened on that day. On Monday, they, they strove side by side, federal and local, working together to try to find the truth. That's the way the church should operate. We should be, as heavenly citizens, committed to working to discover the truth, to reveal the truth, to defend the truth, so that Christ, through the truth, is honored. That's, that's our purpose as a church. It's to glorify God and enjoy Him here and in heaven. Finally, the third, third point we're going to go to here. Our heavenly citizenship is made evident when we are striving side by side for the faith, revealing the doctrine of Christ, and doing so biblically and confidently. That's what God wants us to see in 128 to, to 30. God wants us to know that our heavenly citizenship should be characterized by, thirdly, suffering together for Christ's sake confidently. Suffering in faith, trusting with complete confidence that if we suffer, we're under God's providence and that Christ's authority has placed us here for a purpose. 
In 28 to 30, Paul reminds them of that. He reminds all of us that our heavenly citizenship is made evident not just through our corporate witness, biblical witness, but also through our confident witness. In verse 28, he says, Don't be frightened, not frightened by anything or in anything. Let me read that again. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. Don't be alarmed. Don't be spooked by anything your adversaries line up against you. Don't be afraid of your opponents. You have Christ, the victor. He chose you. He puts you here to strive for the faith of the gospel, the doctrine of Christ. Don't, don't be frightened. He says, your, your lack of fear will be a clear sign to them of their destruction, your opponent's destruction, that they haven't won. They haven't robbed you of the joy, of the reality of the gospel. It's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. Your salvation is from God. And the sign of your assurance and your trust in Him is that you will stand in the opposition's face, not frightened, not moved, striving, battling as co-contenders. When you read this text, I'm sure this history of Rome and history of Philippi was in Paul's heart because he uses certain phrases here that these Roman soldiers would have understood. Don't be frightened. And, and they know that the last thing you want to be called is a coward. If you believe in your cause, if you are strong in your cause, and you know who your leader is and what he's telling you to do is right, don't be afraid. Don't be a coward. Don't be spooked. And for the Philippians, this would have made a particular point to them because their city, when it was founded, it was, it was fought for. It was fought for by a Roman soldier, a Roman leader named Cassius. This, this leader, Cassius, went in to, to do battle there for the city of Philippi. And, and basically what happened was he became frightened. He was so frightened that he thought he was going to lose the battle that he committed suicide there on the battlefield. And that is the ultimate act of cowardice for a leader. He says, don't be like Cassius. Don't be like that. If you know who you are in Christ, don't be spooked by your opponent's threats or anything else they line up against you. But face them with confidence, even though you may suffer on behalf of Christ. So this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, that from God. Confidence here in the face of opposition and suffering for the good of others exposes the foundation of what we believe in and what others trust in. Paul was willing to do this. Paul was willing to stand in the face of his opponents and declare his faith in Christ, even if it cost him imprisonment. So we are to stand, not to see our opponents destroyed. It destroys their arguments when we stand firm in the gospel and we show them there is a hope to be found in Christ so that they're False hopes would be destroyed and they would come to faith in Jesus. And our failure to be afraid, our, our lack of fear when we are opposed is an evident sign that we are secured by Christ. That we trust in the truth. And we're secure in our victor, Jesus, who has promised to not just save us, but to set us here on earth for a purpose. To be His witnesses. To defend His truth side by side. 
and give evidence to those who oppose us that they're going to be defeated unless they repent and believe upon Christ. Verse 29 says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. There's a lot of places in the scriptures that we go to to take a new believer, to share with them the joy of redemption, the joy of forgiveness of sins. But if we neglect this text, we're robbing them. This is part of your salvation. This is part of a characteristic of those who are truly heavenly citizens. You will be suffering for the sake of your Savior. It is an honorable suffering. It's the kind of suffering that we saw there again this week at Boston in the midst of the, the explosions. What were people doing? They were running into the fray. Running in, knowing they could suffer harm, but doing so on behalf of those who were hurting, those who were dying. He says, he says you haven't been just granted to get saved so you can go to heaven. You've been granted salvation so you can serve and suffer for the sake of others and the glory of Christ here on earth. When you strive for the truth, when you stand united. He wants them to understand that they're soldiers. And they're called to suffer for the good of others. And we are too. The reality of suffering as a Christian for your witness is coming. And if you're not convinced of the truth now, don't trust that you will be in the future. When it's this convenient to be a Christian, to gather here and worship Christ together and defend His name here in this congregation, that's great. We need to do that. But be prepared. One day, you may not have this convenience. You may be suffering because they make this illegal. And if you're not completely convinced, and if it doesn't really evidence itself in your life now, I don't know if that's a clear sign of your salvation or your need of redemption. The clear sign, he says, is basically a legal term. This is evidence. Evidence that you belong to Christ. You will not be spooked by your opponents. You will not be spooked by error. You will stand firm with convictions built on truth, with confidence in Christ. You do that because you're saved by Christ, so that you can reveal His greatness and His grace and His persevering power that's manifest through those He's redeemed. Our loyalty and our duty to follow Christ is gospel evidence. This will testify to the world that we trust in the gospel, that we are doing something with the gospel in spite of our opposition, knowing that even when we suffer, the gospel will persevere because it's from God and it's for God. That's why Paul tells us here in Philippians 1.28 that suffering for Christ's sake is a characteristic of our heavenly citizenship. We are suffering for Christ's sake our loyalty to Christ and our confidence in Christ, it reveals how much we value the reassuring promises and the authority of Christ. Look with me at one last text from 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3.10 Paul was confident that this message was worth standing up for, striving together for, and suffering for. 
So, so when we come to Philippians, just, just know this. He's, he's telling us to do something that he is experiencing at the moment. He is the living example of this command, what it means to live worthy of Christ and the gospel. And he wants to reassure us that this, this kind of standing and striving and suffering shows how much worth we place on the promises of Christ. So he writes to Timothy here in 2 Timothy 3 and reminds him of this. It's worth it, Timothy. Have confidence, Timothy. No matter what you face, the promises of Christ are worth it. Be confident. In 3.10 it says, You, speaking to Timothy, however, have followed my teaching, that's doctrine, my conduct, that's lifestyle, my aim of life, that's my purpose, my mindset, my attitude, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch. He says, Timothy, I want you to live a manner of life in such a way that it would glorify Christ and show his great worth, just like I've been doing here by God's grace by teaching and proclaiming and sharing and serving and being persecuted and suffering at all these places. And verse 12 says, Indeed, Timothy, Pastor Timothy and all the saints who sit under him, listen to this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not maybe. Will be. but it's worth it. Have confidence that if you're suffering for Christ, it's a testimony of the gospel that is at work in your life. People may oppose you, but it's because you're exposing their sin. And that's the most loving thing we can do because through that, they can see there is hope and forgiveness and repentance of sin in Christ because we've experienced it. Verse 13 says, While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue. Continue what you have learned, that's doctrine, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach God's Word, knowing you're going to be persecuted. Strive for the truth. Stand firm in the truth of the gospel, knowing you're going to be persecuted. Because it's through the gospel, Jesus is exalted and sinners are saved. It says, be ready in season. That's when it's popular. And out of season, that's when it's not popular. Preach the word. He says, do that this way. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll find preachers who say what their wicked hearts desire, and they'll put them in pulpits. So, Timothy, those are the guys who are going to come after you. So you be faithful and 
faced them without fear, just like the church at Philippi, preach the word. These people will eventually expose themselves, but you stand firm in the gospel. Verse 4 says, They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Church, that's why we preach the Bible. That's why we strive together and stand in the truth together. People will be deceived, and it is happening in groves today. But he says, as for you, good soldier, he says, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Basically, Paul says in verse 6, I'm about to die. My life is now becoming a sacrifice. I'm being poured out on an altar, if you will, to, to give my life completely to Christ. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Look at the confidence in verse 8. There's no doubt. I have, he says in verse 7, fought for Jesus. I have finished, completed my task. I have defended the faith. So I know without a doubt I am a heavenly citizen. And there is a crown of righteousness waiting for me. But then I love this because he's writing to Timothy and he's writing to a church through Timothy. This crown of righteousness is there which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And then he says this, and church, this is yours. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. That crown is yours. It's, it's belonging to those who are willing to fight, to stand firm, to strive, to finish the race, to defend the faith. The crown of righteousness is yours. Have confidence, even though you may suffer here on earth for Christ's sake. Paul was confident that the victor's crown awaits all soldiers who suffer to reveal Christ to others. Can you guys just stop and think about this for just a moment? We will all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers and unbelievers alike, everyone will stand before Him. Believers will stand there and see the redeeming Savior. The scars in His side, on His hands, and on His forehead will still be there because of our sin. We will see Him. We will bow before Him with joy and thanksgiving and adoration. And He'll say, enter in to my kingdom. You already belong here. The lost will stand before Him and they will bow before Him Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus is Kurios, the Lord of the universe, the preeminent one, and their judge, their righteous judge. And he'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And they will enter into eternal damnation in hell. But there will be some that you'll look across and see in that sea of saints that you were able to share the gospel with and that you fought alongside in the gospel as soldiers. And all your work here on earth and all your suffering here on earth will be laid at the feet of King Jesus. And he will say, 
Enter in. You are mine. Enjoy. This is your gift. I just can't help but think about that day and think that if that day is truly the day that we have to look forward to, why we aren't being obedient today to this calling. And all of us fall short. I understand that. But if if we truly want to honor Christ as heavenly citizens on earth, we need to be committed to standing together in unity based on the gospel as a church. Pursuing love, getting rid of division, apologizing to each other, seeking forgiveness, doing whatever it takes to keep and maintain the unity of the faith in the church. And we should should be striving to understand doctrine in such a way that we can defend the faith and share the truth with the lost with compassion and with accuracy. And as heavenly citizens who look for the heavenly home one day, we should also be willing to suffer now temporarily and reflect Christ's compassion and love here for the sake of others. Isn't it it a small price to pay to lose an arm, literally, if someone doesn't lose their soul eternally? There are Christians throughout the world that face that choice every day. Are they going to be characterized by willing to suffer, to defend the truth, and explain the truth, and stand for the truth, and maybe die for the truth? That's a daily choice for many Christians. It's not for us. But we need to have our hearts fixed upon this truth so that we will be faithful as ambassadors, as soldiers, heavenly citizens here in the freedoms that we have now at this time. Paul's telling us in this last part of this chapter that our manner of life will reveal how much we value Christ. Your manner of life will reveal how much you value Jesus. So think about that this morning. And if, if that's your testimony, if you, if you can look at your life and you can see that you value Christ and that you want to stand for the truth and you want to strive with others and you want to suffer for Christ's sake to save others, then rejoice. Because that's from God. That's a gift. But if that's not your testimony, I have good news. It can be your testimony. Confess your sins to God. Repent of your sins. Acknowledge your sins in light of what God's done and say, I am sorry and I can't do anything about my past. But I know Christ. He took my place. I trust in Him. Turn to Christ and from sin. Trust in His work. Trust in what He has done. And you can have the assurance and confidence of being a heavenly citizen by God's grace through faith in Christ's work. Let's give thanks for that this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank You this day in Jesus' name for the hope of the gospel. It is is our hope that secures us. It is our hope that sanctifies us. It is is our hope that sends us out to the lost. Let us be faithful and characterized by how much we value Christ as a church, personally, evangelistically, biblically, sacrificially. Let us be identified as followers of Jesus, no matter what it costs us. Build our convictions on your word. Strengthen our church for your namesake.
Send us out as your ambassadors with joy and thanksgiving in our hearts. For the good of the lost and the glory of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.